Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Fifth grader Amy Mahalovic went to Bay Village Middle School on Friday wearing green pants, a lavender and green sweatshirt, and carrying a denim and red backpack. Police found Amy's bike locked up at school, but they haven't found Amy. Now to Boulder, where this month marks 25 years since John Benet Ramsey was murdered. New advancements in DNA technology has provided Boulder Police and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation a new look at over 750 crime scene samples. Possible suspects are being run through the system all over again. DNA is one of the leading tools for investigators in this case, and advancing technology could help them get closer to a killer. To this date, her killer remains unknown. My name is Sergeant Jeremy Pierce, the Public Information Officer with the Indiana State Police out of Lafayette Post. While investigating the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German, detectives with the Carroll County Sheriff's Office and the Indiana State Police have uncovered an online profile named Anthony Schatz. This profile was being used from 2016 to 2017 on social media applications, including but not limited to Snapchat and Instagram. The fictitious Anthony Schatz profile used images of a known male model and portrayed himself as being extremely wealthy and owning numerous sports cars. The creator of the fictitious profile used this information while communicating with juvenile females to solicit nude images, obtain their address, and attempt to meet with them. Today marks 25 years since Austin's yogurt shop murders. Detectives say that high profile case is a big part of our history, but a lot has changed since then. Fox 7's Ashley Paredes in studio with more. Ashley. Mike, they still hope to put those responsible behind bars. DNA that was found a few years ago could eventually lead to a suspect. There are now growing similarities between the bodies found on Long Island and the bodies found near Atlantic City back in 2006. Those were four prostitutes who you see here. They worked the Atlantic City boardwalk. They were all found murdered. A decades-old murder still haunts a town in Osceola County. That's because whoever killed Jeanette Robertson back in 1983 remains a mystery. 9 10's Evan Dean spoke with Jeanette's family and the Reed City Police Chief. He has part one of our special series, Mysteries of Northern Michigan. Hello and welcome to episode 151 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, I want to look at the cases that I would love to see solved in 2022. Some of these are wishful thinking because in all reality, it is very difficult to solve cold cases. Hence the 200,000 plus unsolved murders floating around the U.S. Some of these cases I have covered and others are just in the zeitgeist that they need to be or deserve to be mentioned. Let's just jump into the cases I'd be ecstatic to see solved this year. And let's begin with number 10, Molly Bish. On June 27th, 2000, 16-year-old lifeguard Molly Bish disappeared from her lifeguard post at Cummings Pond in Warren, Mass. On the day before Molly's disappearance, her mother Maggie noticed a mustached Caucasian male in a white sedan in the parking lot at the pond. Though he appeared suspicious, Maggie brushed it off and, well, she dropped Molly off too. Molly had only been in her position as a lifeguard for a week, and again, this was June 27th when her mother dropped her off. Now, Maggie received the call that no parent wants to get, and that was from the police, informing her that no lifeguard was on duty at the pond. So she quickly returned to Molly's post, only to discover her sandals and her lunch. This is a safe community. According to the city's website, Warren is a rural town of 5,000 people located in western Worcester County and is bisected by the Waybog River. Now, Warren is one of six existing towns that were first settled in 1660 and known as the Quobog, Quabog Plantation. Incorporated as Western in 1741, the town was renamed in honor of Revolutionary War Joseph Warren, and that was in 1834. The day started off like any other. At 9.50 a.m., Molly and her mom stopped at the local convenience store to grab some water bottles. Afterward, they drove to the police station to pick up the required two-way radio. As there were no telephones or communications at Cummings Pond, the radio was the only way lifeguards could connect 
or contact police or anyone outside of the area. Molly and her mother arrived at the pond at 10 a.m., and minutes later, the first swimmers of the day arrived. When people began to arrive for their swim lessons, they noticed Molly's things at her station, and her first aid kit was open, but no Molly. Given she was 16 years old, it was assumed she'd walked off with friends and one of the mothers took over lifeguarding duties for the lessons. She then informed Molly's boss of her absence. At 11.44 a.m., Molly's boss, via the two-way radio, reported to police that Molly had gone missing. The Warren Police Department didn't take the report seriously, assuming she'd ditched work to hang out with her friends. When 1 p.m. came and went, and Molly still hadn't returned to her post, the police notified her parents. Molly's mother told police her daughter had been dropped off at work earlier that day. In the summer of 2000, 16-year-old Molly Bish, again, began working as a lifeguard at Cummings Pond. And, you know, however this case may seem, you know, Molly literally just disappeared. And police searched the pond and the surrounding woods, but Molly was not found. And although there was no sign of a struggle at the scene, police and her family were convinced that she was abducted. Now, Maggie called Molly's sister, Heather, to try to explain that what was going on. They both agreed that something was wrong, so they met at the police station where they were told there was nothing to be concerned about. According to authorities, Molly was probably upset about her friend being hurt and had gone off to blow off some steam. They started looking for Molly on their own. They checked to see if anyone had visited a friend at the hospital and found that Molly hadn't been amongst her visitors. Heather also went to her boyfriend's house, but he hadn't heard from her all day. Like the police, he wasn't too concerned. They apparently weren't too worried, but Molly's boyfriend and Heather decided to drive to the pond to meet with Maggie. They wondered why Molly hadn't taken her shoes with her, and if she had gone off on her own, that wouldn't make any sense. So Maggie argued with the police and said that her daughter would never leave her post, and she'd been worried about kids starting swim lessons. After talking with more of the family, the officers began to think they were onto something and thus called in the state police to help as they hadn't had much experience working on missing persons cases. Hence why they never took it very seriously at the beginning. Upon being brought on, the state police wondered if Molly could have drowned in the pond, something her family immediately disagreed with as she was a strong swimmer. Of course she had to be. She was a lifeguard. A dive team of boats were brought in to search the pond, but after several hours, they had found nothing, and the search along with the woods was called off until morning. And then it was at 6 a.m. on June 28th, law enforcement deployed all units, including a helicopter with infrared imaging and a mounted unit, as well as townspeople initiated their own search parties and businesses printed and posted missing person flyers on their storefronts. Police began to look at a path that led from the beach at Cummings Pond to a nearby cemetery, as they thought if someone had abducted Molly, they could have exited the area through this path and has not been seen. Since Molly's first aid kit was open, investigators speculated that someone could have faked an injury, i.e. Ted Bundy, and she may have been abducted while trying to help them. This triggered Maggie's memory, and she realized she might have seen who abducted her daughter, as she remembered seeing that suspicious-looking man that I mentioned earlier in this segment. According to Maggie, you know, she the morning she had started out like any other, but when she and Molly arrived at the pond, they noticed that white vehicle parked in the parking lot. Now, while Maggie watched her daughter, she noticed the man in the vehicle was watching her, too. As he appeared to be glaring at her, Maggie stayed with Molly while she organized her station and only left upon the man eventually pulling out of the parking lot. Molly hadn't been worried about him, thinking he was just another fisherman. When asked for a description of the man, Maggie described him as approximately 50 years old with salt-and-pepper hair. He had dark eyes, a mustache, and was smoking a cigarette. They came up with a composite sketch, and that's kind of what you see these days when you're looking into this case. And again, <clears throat> nothing came in. They were really, you know, thousands of tips were brought in, but again, they didn't lead to anything. And that's unfortunately the case with a lot of these missing people, is that when you have somebody just disappear, you're going to get lots and lots and lots of tips, and sometimes it's hard to, you know, find this stuff and 
all of the, you know, stuff gets lost in the sauce. Let's just put it that way. And it was not until June 9th of 2003 when the remains of Molly Bish were identified. And they were found uh, just a few miles from where she was uh, last seen. And again, everything about this case is just terrible. You know, she was buried in a shallow grave, but that actually was helpful because her bones were eventually discovered. And it's just one of those things. It's like, how did they miss it? But I don't know. I mean, it's pretty thick woods. I mean, it happens. And, you know, the district attorney has gone on to say that 11 people that failed a lie detector test and they put the leads into their computer base with the help of the state police and they say that they were going to search every single lead that we have. And again, the body was found in Palmer, which was five miles from Cummings Pond, which led them to believe the killer had to be local. Unfortunately, based on the evidence found, it was hard to pinpoint a cause of death. Now, the nice thing about technology is that it could actually come in handy on this particular case because, you know, it was 20 years ago, 21 years ago, that Molly went missing, but now they have DNA. And the DNA was taken from Francis Sumner Jr., the son of Francis Sumner Sr. Now, in June, Worcester District Attorney Joseph Early Jr. announced that the elder Sumner was a person of interest in Molly's kidnapping and killing, but has not said exactly what linked Sumner to the case. The younger, younger Sumner is incarcerated at the London Correctional Institution in Ohio for aggravated robbery. And that is according to the records from the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. Now, this is a long journey, Bish said. I do feel confident that they brought this person forward a few months ago, and they're giving it the full throttle of their efforts. So I'm very satisfied and grateful that the Worcester District Attorney's Office is working so hard on this case, even after all these years. And that was, again, that was Heather Bish speaking out. And... Again, Sumner was a former Spencer resident. Now, he was 71 and he, when he died. That's the one thing about this case that is frustrating. If it was this guy, he's been dead for six years or close to six years and got away with it. And, you know, it's just kind of wild. But I do believe that, uh, you know, he didn't have a good life. I believe he was in prison uh, on other charges but again they still haven't come out with exactly what it is that connects him to the case but it is very interesting to know that Sumner is named as a person of interest so there is a tip line that you can call and that is 508-453-7575 and that can be an anonymous tip. So, again, if you know anything about Molly's disappearance, please contact the authorities. All right, the next case that I would love to see solved is the Long Island serial killer, a.k.a. the Gilgo Beach murderer. And this is the case where 11 bodies were found near Gilgo and Oak Beaches, while Suffolk p police were actually searching for Shannon Gilbert along the Ocean Parkway, and she was a 24-year-old sex worker from New Jersey who vanished in 2010 after leaving a client's house in Oak Beach. Police released a photo of a belt with the initials WH or HM. The belt is a piece of evidence handled by an unknown suspect found at one of the crime scenes where 11 sets of human remains were found strewn along a highway near Gilgo Beach on Long Island. Again, it was during the search the police made the startling discovery when they found the remains of Melissa Bartholomew, 24, in December 11, 2010. Two days later, three more bodies were discovered. Megan Waterman, 22, Amber Lynn Costello, 27, and Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 25. All four bodies were spaced approximately 500 feet from one another, Suffolk County Police said. 
In March 2011, the partial remains of Jessica Taylor were found along Ocean Parkway by Suffolk Police. Now, the following month in April 2011, Suffolk Police uncovered another three additional remains. They were a female toddler, an Asian man, and a woman whose partial remains were previously found in Manorville in November 2000. Police have not identified any of these three victims. The grisly discoveries continued when police unearthed two additional bodies in Nassau County, one being the mother of the unidentified toddler found in Suffolk. Now, Gilbert's remains were found on Oak Beach in December 2011. The murders all remain unsolved, and police have not publicly named suspect. NBC New York reported that four of the victims, including Gilbert, were sex workers. Hart said during a news conference that Gilbert's death does not match any of the patterns of the Gilgo Beach killings, but they will not rule out the possibility that it may be connected to the murders of the other 10 victims. On the night Gilbert disappeared, she called 911 from her client's home and said that someone was trying to kill her. According to NBC New York, there were three other calls made that night, but none of the calls have been made public. In January 2019, Suffolk County Police fought a judge's order to turn over the call, with department lawyers arguing that releasing the tape could jeopardize the investigation. An attorney for Gilbert's estate said police refusing to release this call is suspicious, claiming it could reveal information that is damaging to pol the police department. Hart told reporters Thursday that the 911 tapes aren't being public because they are part of the investigation. Again, this is a case that we are still continuing to wait and see what happens. There is still no definitive word on who may have been involved. And if you do have any information in regard to these murders, you can contact the Suffolk County Police or your local FBI branch. And again, I'm sure there's a reward, and I'm sure you can remain anonymous. Number eight on my list is the Colonial Parkway murders. And this is a personal case as well, because I've gotten to know Bill Thomas throughout the years of podcasting. He had, he's basically his sister's biggest advocate, and I would love to see him find some peace. The Parkway is federal land, and the FBI uh, was possibly going to get involved and, you know, it's it's interesting. This, this is a really interesting case. CrimeMuseum.org says, quote, Police have questioned 150 suspects in connection to these four cases, but all have been cleared. The police attribute these eight murders to the same killer because of the similarities in each case. Now, all the victims were killed at or near their car, the first three being found at a known lover's lane area. None of the victims were robbed, and sexual assault did not appear to be the motive in any of the cases. The first and third murders were mere miles apart, and the second and fourth were committed about a half hour away from the parkway. Now, in 2018, the Facebook page Colonial Parkway Murders, which is run by Bill Thomas, and, you know, he basically is the one that's run, um, you know, leading the charge on finding the killer. Um, I mean, the first couple to fall victim were Kathy Thomas, which is Bill Thomas's sister, and Rebecca Dowski. Kathleen Thomas was 27 and a class of the 1981 graduate United States Naval Academy and College of William and Mary senior Rebecca Ann Dowski, 21. On October 12, 1986, which was Columbus Day weekend, their bodies were found inside Thomas's white 1980 Honda Civic at the Cheatham Annex Overlook. The second couple was found on September 20th, 1987. David Nobling and Robin Edwards, 14, were shot to death in the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge on the south shore of the James River in Isle of Wight County near Smithfield, Virginia. Nobling's black Ford Ranger pickup truck was found at the refuge parking area next to the James River Bridge with the wipers and radio on and some articles of clothing inside. Three days later, the two bodies were discovered by Nobling's father in a search party along the water's edge of the James River. The third couple, on April 10th, 1988, Christopher Newport University students Cassandra Lee Haley, 18, and Richard Keith Call, 20, were reported missing after attending a party in the University Square area in Newport. 
Now, this was their first date. And Call's red 1982 Toyota Celica was found unoccupied at the York River Overlook on the Colonial Parkway. The next day, with some articles of clothing inside, their bodies have never been found, but both are presumed dead. And the fourth couple, on September 5th, 1989, just after Labor Day weekend, Anna Maria Phelps, 18, and Daniel Lauer, 21, vanished while en route to Virginia Beach. Phelps had been dating Lauer's brother at the same time they went missing. Lauer's car, a gold 1972 Chevrolet Nova, was soon found abandoned on the I-64 New Kent rest stop in New Kent County, and it was discovered to have been heading in the wrong direction, away from their intended Virginia Beach destination. On October 19, 1989, the skeletonized bodies of Phelps and Lauer were found in a wooded area by hunters along Interstate 64 between Williamsburg and Richmond. The hunters discovered the bodies on a logging road about a quarter of a mile from the courthouse road, a location about one mile from I-64, New Kent rest stop, where Lauer's car was found. At least one of the badly decomposed bodies appeared to have suffered knife wounds. There is a possible other set of victims, and again, that is debatable. But this is another one of those long-time cold cases that really would be nice to see solved. And not just because I know Bill Thomas, but because of all the families that have been impacted. I mean, that is a lot of murders in a small stretch of, you know, highway. And clearly there's some really bad people lurking around that part of town. So let's just hope they can find the answers. If you do have any information about the Colonial Parkway murders, please contact your local FBI branch or your local Crime Stoppers. Number seven is the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. On December 6th, 1991, the day started off like most days in Austin, Texas for Sarah and Jennifer Harbison. They got ready for school, packed their book bags, and headed off for the day. It was an overcast day for the city, with temperatures maxing out around 72, a cool Texas Friday. Austin, Texas in 1991 was just coming into its own as a nationally known place where creativity can thrive. Not only is Austin the capital of Texas, it holds the title of live music capital of the world. In 1994, the city created the Austin Film Festival and filmmakers such as Mike Judge, Richard Linklater, and good old Matthew McConaughey call Austin home. Now, Sarah would be working that night shift, so her plans were already set. She would be working with Eliza Thomas, another classmate at Lanier High School. For Sarah and Eliza, their shift was going to be just like any other Friday night. They worked together at the I Can't Believe It's Not Yogurt Shop, and the shift started exactly the way they had expected. This was 1992, and the frozen yogurt fad was still in full swing, with lines pretty much at most times. The chain the girls worked for had hundreds of stores in multiple states. Amy Ayers, a friend of the girls, and Jennifer Harbison, Sarah's little sister, came up to the shop to hang out. A normal routine for any teenager who has friends working by themselves. Their place of employment can become an ideal hangout spot. Heck, we've all been there. As the shift progressed, patrons came and went. It was a Friday night, so the store was busy and the girls would be closing late. Around 11.45 p.m. that same night, a local police officer was on patrol when he took notice to smoke coming from the yogurt shop. As the call went out to the fire department, the blaze quickly became a two-alarm fire requiring assistance from other departments to extinguish the fire. In all, some 50 firefighters were needed to get the fire under control and prevent it from spreading to other stores. So what started off like any other day ended in absolute horror for these four girls at the shop, the families, the friends, the first responders, and the community of Austin. As the fire was being put out, nobody on the scene had any idea what they were about to find. As the firemen moved into the building to finish extinguishing the hotspots and any other little fires, they found something that they could never forget. In the back of the store, near the exit, they found bodies piled on one another. As the medical examiners were called in, the grief the first responders were going through was clear. 
It was also obvious something horrible had occurred as the firefighters emerged dazed and confused. One veteran police officer said he was stunned by the senseless killing of four teenage girls, all of whom were shot twice in the back of the head at a yogurt shop that was then set afire. Quote, I've been on the force 10 years, and I've lived in Austin 20, and this is the worst I remember, said Sergeant Scott Carey. People always believed the city to be safe, as cliche as that is, but now they were entirely gripped by fear. On December 8, 1981, in an issue from the Associated Press detailing the carnage from these firefighters faced and the trauma these girls were forced to endure, police were at a loss but said robbery must have been a motive for the slains and fire may have been used to cover up the crime. As the scene became overcome with rescuers, investigators, and the media, police said they have no suspects in the case. As the fire was put out, investigators were asking any customers who were in the I can't believe it's yogurt store around closing time Friday to come forward and talk to them. The victims, again, were all from Austin, and they were identified as Jennifer Harbison, 14, her sister Sarah, 15, Eliza Thomas, 17, and Amy Ayers, 13. Now, again, officials said Jennifer and Eliza were employees, and the other two were friends. Quote, based on preliminary investigative work, robbery is being considered as a possible motive for the killings, according to a statement from police. In our try for a why, we like to hang our hat on that they were being robbed. I don't know that for sure. That's a possible out there. But I don't know if we're dealing with someone who's high on drugs, homicide detective John Jones told KLBJ Radio. Quote, I certainly hope so, because it doesn't seem like the act of a sane, rational individual. Carey said police had not ruled out the possibility that the assailant or assailants knew one or more of the victims. So this was a really, really well-covered case. I mean, it's been covered by every uh, Dateline, 48 Hours, there's books about it. I did a four-part series on it or a three-part series on it. It's a tragic case, and it's really one that doesn't have much, um, you know, there's not a lot of leads. I mean, you can look at a lot of the maps. You can look at a lot of the pictures. You can figure out what happened, but where are the people that committed this crime? They still don't know. So if you know anything, again, you have the local FBI. You also have the Austin Police Department you can reach out to. I'm sure they'd be happy to direct you where you need to go. So, number six, Jeanette Roberson, the murder of 27-year-old Jeanette Roberson in Reed City, Michigan on January 19, 1983. This is a weird one. Jeanette was working in in the pet department of the store when she was severely beaten and sexually assaulted. The incident took place between 1 and 4 p.m. in the basement of Gamble's store, which is now Reed City Hardware. Jeanette, her husband, and their two young children had moved to the small town of Reed City about eight months prior to her death. According to Detective Sergeant John Forner, Michigan State Police, quote, in broad daylight, basically someone entered the store and killed Jeanette. It was in the basement where another employee found Jeanette's bruised and battered body on the afternoon of January 19, 1983. There had been other employees and customers walking around upstairs, and no one reportedly heard anything. Jeanette was severely beaten with different blunt objects and had also been sexually assaulted. Now, belief is that the murderer walked up the stairs and into the open, but still, no witnesses, no concrete leads, and not a single suspect. According to 9 and 10 News, detectives were putting together binders full of background and ordering evidence collected at the time to be resubmitted for testing. Quote, from items of clothing to items that may have been left behind by the person responsible, according to Forner. Jeanette's body was found in a 10 by 10 room filled with pet supplies and stock shelves. The 27-year-old mother of two died of an apparent head wound, according to initial reports published in The Pioneer. Quote, are there advancements in the forensics that could help us on these old cases? 
Is there evidence that has never been submitted to the lab before? Unquote. Investigators hope that the new capabilities in testing for trace evidence like hair, fibers, reliable DNA, pulling a suspect's fingerprint from virtually thin air, even the shoes that the person may have been wearing. Heck, as we saw in the Atlanta child murder case, fiber evidence can be critical in making a connection to a suspect. And I've talked about it before, but time can be your enemy in cases like Jeanette's. It may help you and hurt you for obvious reasons. People's memories fade as the years pass, but also as the years pass, allegiances can change. It's pretty well known that the husband, Jeanette's husband, and her were not getting along at that point. And that, according to Chief Davis, it absolutely could have been somebody who had an infatuation with her. The chief told 9 and 10 News, quote, I think we have more hope than we did 10 years ago with people calling and the activity. After com- covering a number of these cases, I'm beginning to hate it when I hear the case has been given the dreaded albatross of, quote, being solved by a deathbed confession. It's just one of those things you just that you can't rely on. Technology is still the best chance for any answer in this case. And then you have Connie Swander, who is the director of the Michigan State Police Forensic Laboratory in Grayling. She said that, quote, just the evidence is old. It's not useful anymore. Almost all the people who were shopping above were identified in question, except for one man. Composite sketches of this anonymous man were drawn up. He was described as a white man with sandy blonde hair and a blue jacket. He stood around 5 foot 9 inches and weighed approximately 170 pounds. DNA from the crime scene was retrieved, but hasn't yet matched anybody. For the last 31 years, the Reed City Police Department has partnered with Michigan State Police to collect countless tips and perform dozens of interviews to try and piece together what exactly happened that day. A sketch of that possible suspect was created from the information that the Michigan State Police put together in the days following Roberson's death. Quote, we just thought that if we got some flyers out there and we printed it and we got a little bit more awareness, maybe there's something out there that knows something or has heard something over the years or was on Upton Street that day between 2 and 4 and maybe saw something that they thought might be important. And this was according to the organizers and author Jenny Becker. Chief Davis says the chances are slim that the person could still be identified after all this time. As we all know, quote, when an homicide occurs, the first 48 to 72 hours are the most important and crucial, explained Chief Davis. But in the days immediately following Jeanette's murder, police made no arrests. Quote, after that point, it's not hard for something to go cold. There is a suspect, the man, approximately 20 to 30, age 5 foot 8 or 9, 170 pounds, possibly wearing a blue jacket. The sketches of the person described by three witnesses have been reproduced. The person is believed to have been in gambles shortly before the reported murder. When the sketch was released, police emphasized this was not a suspect or a person of interest, just someone they wanted to talk with. As with all cases... The significant other will always be the number one suspect. However, in Jeanette's case, he doesn't seem to be in the thought process of investigators. Again, this is a case that has been in the news. Uh, We'd love to see this case solved. I think they are probably hoping that somebody will come forward. You can contact the Michigan State Police as well as the Michigan FBI I am sure there is a branch near Reed City. So if you have any information regarding the death of Jeanette Roberson, please contact your local investigators. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All 
All right, let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Well, you guys, we made it through 2021, and 2022 isn't looking any better. But if there is anything holding you back or interfering with your happiness, you can find help at BetterHelp.com. Now you can get the help you need on your own time and at your own pace with BetterHelp Online Counseling. You can connect with a professional counselor in a private and safe online environment. It's really convenient because we live in a fluid world, so it needs to be. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions. You can also chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. My favorite thing is for Whatever reason you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your computer or your smartphone, so you're never out of touch. So if you're suffering from anxiety, I like, like me, heck, or issues such as anger, stress, relationships, grief, self-esteem, whatever it may be, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The thing I like most is it's actually an affordable option. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and you get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com who. All right, we are back. Number five, Honey and Barry Sherman. On the morning of Friday, December 15th, 2017, Barry Sherman, who was a multi-billionaire founder of Canadian pharmaceutical company Apotex and well-known philanthropist, was discovered in the basement of his 12,000-square-foot home in Toronto in a seated position, legs outstretched, the right leg crossed neatly over the left, his back to the lap pool. He was wearing his glasses, perched undisturbed on his nose, His bomber-style jacket was pulled slightly off his shoulders and down, which held his arms at his side. Beside him, Honey, his wife of 47 years, known as the Queen of Toronto's Jewish community, was in a similar position. The light coat she wore also pulled off her shoulders, holding her hands at her side. They were both VSA, paramedic, and police code for vital signs absent. A quick estimate by the paramedics suggested that the couple had been dead for at least a day, if not more. Rigor mortis, the condition where muscles stiffen after death, had passed and the limbs were now relaxed and limp. The reason why they were still in a sitting position and had not slumped over or tipped back into the pool was that each of the Shermans had a man's leather belt around their neck that was tied above their head to the three-foot-high stainless steel railing around the end of the lap pool. Both were fully dressed, their coats over top of clothes they had worn that day. Barry's face was untouched. Honey's was damaged, but by what was unclear. Barry was 75 when he died. Honey was 70. Just before 4 p.m., the story broke in the Toronto media that two bodies had been found inside the home of Apotex founder Barry Sherman. A few minutes later, a tweet went out on social media from Dr. Eric Hoskins, Ontario's health minister, who had dealt with the Shermans both professionally and as a friend. Television crews, reporters, and photographers rushed to Old Colony Road. News traveled across the country and internationally. At the time of Sherman's death, Forbes estimated his personal net worth at $3 billion. One highly placed insider with knowledge of the Sherman's family holding company told that the Sherman's had numerous investments outside of Apotex and their real net worth could be closer to $10 billion. Okay, so the Sherman's. This is a very interesting case because there's a lot of bad blood in this family. And again, there is some video evidence that they have recently come out with. I don't know how much of that is going to play into the investigation, but it is something that is pretty interesting to think about. And uh, again, this isn't that old of a case, but it is a very uh, infamous case because of the fact that they were so wealthy and 
I mean, they, I mean, come on, ten billion dollars. I think they were one of Canadians, one of Canada's richest couples, and that is uh, a pretty big deal. So I mean, it'd be like Bezos getting whacked or Bill Gates or something like that, just to put it in perspective. And so again. There's a lot of interesting stuff. If you want to look into that case, there is um, some money discrepancies between certain family members, and um, police have never been able to, you know, nail anything down. But it is very interesting to know that they are um, still looking into this case and still asking the public for help. So if you know anything, please contact the con Toronto police uh, or the Canadian uh, Mounted Police. They will also help direct you in the right direction. So it's just, uh, it's a shame that this couple who were known for their philanthropy, I mean, you don't make a billion dollars without making a few enemies. So, you know, anything could have happened, but it is... One of those cases, it still remains unsolved, and whether it's um, somebody close to them or not, or somebody maybe that was hired by somebody, again, if you know anything, again, just call the Toronto State Police or the Toronto Police and the Canadian Mounted Police. They would help you uh, with your information. So number four, well, John Benet Ramsey, and well, this one speaks for itself. I actually just did a two-part episode on this case with the captain from True Crime Garage. And, uh, you know, we had some very interesting conversations about what we thought could have happened, who could have been involved. And CNN had this, uh, you know, fast facts on the John Bonet case. And, you know, this is one of those cases I don't even feel like I need to explain. But just to give you a little bit of background, this was the six-year-old beauty pageant queen who was found murdered in her Boulder, Colorado home on December 26, 1996. Nobody has ever been charged in the case and the investigation is still open. Again, early suspicion fell on the parents, but they were exonerated after DNA at the scene was found to belong to a male who is unrelated to the Ramsey family. Now, John Bonet was born on August 6, 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia, and she was the daughter of John and Patricia Patsy Ramsey. Burke, Burke Ramsey was her brother. And some other interesting facts is that John Bonet was named after her father, John Bennett Ramsey, and her name is pronounced in a French style, Jean Bonet. She went the she 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 was winning beauty pageants. Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Charlevoix. Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, America's Royal Miss, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. She is now buried in Marietta, Georgia, beside her mother who died of ovarian cancer in 2006, and her half-sister Elizabeth Ramsey who died in a car crash in 1992. And the timeline states that on December 26, 1996, Jean Benet is murdered in her Boulder, Colorado home. Her body is found in her basement that same day. Jean Benet's mother, Patsy, says she found a ransom note demanding $118,000 for John Benet's return. January 4th, 1997, reports reveal that John Benet's skull had been fractured. Fast forward four months, and police finally conduct their first formal interviews with the parents, John and Patsy. Then another six months goes by. Boulder police say John and Patsy Ramsey remain under a, quote, umbrella of suspicion. Then, on January 15, 1998, John Bonet's parents declined to participate in a second interview with detectives, saying they won't cooperate unless police allow them to review evidence in the case. Weird. October 13, 1999, Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter states that no indictments will be issued due to a lack of evidence in this case. And again, to December 2003, a new DNA sample is submitted to the FBI database in hopes of finding new leads. Three years later, Patsy Ramsey dies of ovarian cancer. Then, in August of 2006, the crazy thing happens with John Mark Carr. He's a 41-year-old sociopath who claimed to have been the killer of Jean Benet. 
And for some reason, everybody fell for this, and they went through all the trouble of extraditing him from Thailand, and the prosecutors would have to drop the case because, guess what? DNS, DNA tests failed to link him to the crime scene. Then, the controversy controversy stands out again on July 9th, 2008, when Boulder County District Attorney Marcy or Mary Lacey says no one in the Ramsey family is considered a suspect and formally apologizes in a letter to John Ramsey. In February 2009, Boulder Police Department resumes its status as the lead agency investigating the case. October 2nd, 2010, police investigators conduct new rounds of interviews. Three years later, the Boulder Daily Camera reported that in 1999, the grand jury voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey on charges of child abuse resulting in death, but Hunter decided there was not enough evidence to file charges and did not sign the indictment. Fast forward another three years, and this is another controversial moment when CBS decided to air a docuseries about the case, and they decided to suggest that John Renee's brother, Burke, who was nine at the time, may have been the culprit. He went on to file a $250 million defamation lawsuit against the network, the production company, and one of the featured experts, Dr. Werner Spitz. Burke had filed a separate defamation lawsuit against Spitz in October, stemming from a comment the doctor made during a radio interview. John Ramsey later files his own suit against CBS in Michigan State Court. Following, undi- following an undisclosed settlement, Michigan Circuit Court Judge David Groner signs an order of dismissal in the defamation lawsuit filed by Burke against CBS. Court documents appear to show that John Ramsey's separate lawsuit against the media company is also settled and dismissed on the same day. Wow. Two years later, the city of Boulder releases a statement saying they have processed more than 1,500 pieces of DNA or pieces of evidence and analyzed nearly 1,000 DNA samples related to the child's murder. In the release, Boulder Police Department say they actively, quote, use new technology to enhance the investigation and regularly for DNA matches in order to solve the case. So, again, I just did a two-part episode with the captain. And we, uh, I don't know, we kind of fell on the, it's probably like the whole thing with Santa is very suspicious. I think that's a very interesting uh, avenue. You know, the fact that she told their friend's mother that, no, Santa's going to bring me a gift after Christmas. And the friend's mother said, no, they give you gifts on Christmas. And she argued back, no, Santa told me. And that is an interesting tidbit of information because you know that could mean a lot of different things so if you know anything about this case it's only been you know uh, close to 30 years or something like that 25 years 25 year anniversary it's it's uh this is a tough one um i've been by the home i've been by the neighborhood i mean the neighborhood's very it's just like any suburban neighborhood, except for the fact that it's based at the Rocky Mountains and it is just uber expensive to live there. But they lived right next to people. I mean, it's not like they were in some country estate. You know, when you hear $3 million home, you think, oh, this is some uh, sprawling mansion. But in all reality, it's just the prices in Boulder are just so expensive that, sure, it was a big house and he made a lot of money, but it's also a very expensive place to live. So, uh, price does not always dictate how big your home is. And uh, again, uh, he was successful. I mean, he got a $118,000 bonus. And that's another weird thing that why would this person know how much money he received in a bonus? So it does make you wonder what the heck is going on. But as the case stands today, it is cold, unsolved, and not looking very promising unless somebody commits a crime and that DNA that they have matches it. So if you know anything about this case, please contact your local FBI, your local Boulder Police Department, uh, Boulder County Sheriff. Um, Yeah, Crime Stoppers. This is one that definitely everybody would like to see solved. Number three on the list is Maura Murray. Now, I have not covered this case because I believe the guys over at Crawl Space 
as well as James Renner, have done a plenty of coverage on Miss Murray's disappearance. But I'm going to read from Peter DeMarco's 2004 article from the Boston Globe. Six days have passed since college student Maura Murray crashed her car on a rural highway in northern New Hampshire and disappeared without a trace. But his family, friends, and investigators continue their search for the 21-year-old Hansen native. Two questions continue to baffle them. Where was Murray going, and what was she running from? A junior in the University of Massachusetts at Amherst's nursing program, Murray was doing well in school. She had a dedicated boyfriend, a loving family, and close friends. Her father, Frederick, Fred, had just told her he wanted to buy her a new car. But on Monday, Murray apparently decided she needed to get away from life for a while. In short order, she withdrew a few hundred dollars from an ATM machine, packed her cell phone wall charger, and her favorite stuffed monkey into her Saturn. She emailed her professors to tell them she wouldn't be in class all week and headed north for the White Mountains. Whatever her intended destination was, she never made it there in her car. At about 7 that night, while taking a sharp turn on wild, not even going to try to pronounce it, road in Woodsville, New Hampshire, Murray lost control and slammed into a snowbank. She was shaken by the accident and apparently was intoxicated. Murray told a witness she didn't need help, local police said. The witness went to call the police, and by the time they arrived, Murray was gone. Using tracking dogs, helicopters, and trained searchers, local and state police, as well as state fish and game officials, covered nearly 20 miles along Route 112, but found no trace of Miss Murray's footprints in the snow. The tracking dogs lost her scent within 100 feet of the accident, leading her investigators and her loved ones to believe she either hitched a ride and continued on her way or was just abducted. We're all under the assumption that since the trail sort of falls off, someone picked her up. We really hope she doesn't quite understand how many people have been looking for her, said high school friend Carly Muse. Maybe if she doesn't realize that, the person who gave her a ride will and come forward. Murray, a former top student and track star at Whitman Hanson Regional High School, is described by friends and family as responsible, attractive, and very close to her family, in particular her father, who spent yesterday checking bus stations in New Hampshire and Vermont for any signs of her. A witness told police Murray had appeared to have been intoxicated at the time of the crash. Now, again, the case is getting a lot of attention these days from the media, and that's uh, probably because there were bones found at the base of Loon Mountain in 2021, but unfortunately they did not match Maura Murray. So the big question out there for the people that are really into solving this case, uh, people that I know, you know, Tim and Lance, as well as James, uh, I know that there's some controversy as far as, you know, who's doing what and whatever, but the bottom line is it's a missing woman. And, it should be solved. I mean, nobody just goes disappearing in the, this world, but at least we like to think that. But then again, a whole plane disappeared and that happened. So I guess you never know what's going to happen in this uh, crazy world that we live in. So if you have any information, please contact the Massachusetts State Police. They would love to talk to you about this case. And if you have any information, that would be fabulous because there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people looking for an answer. And uh, this would be one of those cases that would be great to be solved. And, uh, yeah, let's just hope that you, if you have any information, reach out to Crime Stoppers or, you know, as I said, the local FBI is also there for you too. So number number two on the list and this is, again, kind of personal. And if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that I have a real passion to see this case solved. And that is the Delphi murders. I've gotten to know Libby's sister, Kelsey, over the years. And she was on multiple episodes of Who Killed? The authorities recently held a press conference about the possibility of a connection to a social media profile that was used to lure teens to send nude pictures around the time that the teens went missing. Now, the presser seemed very important since I saw the activity on Kelsey's Twitter. 
It sounded very promising, but I really haven't seen much news since. So the case kind of goes like this. It was a Monday, February 13th, at approximately 1 p.m., when the two young girls were left off near the Monin High Bridge, uh, an abandoned rail bridge over Deer Creek, to walk around and hang out. They were to be picked up later in the afternoon, but did not show up as they were previously arranged. Following an extensive search at approximately 12.15 p.m. on February 14, 2017, the bodies of the two girls were found in a wooded area near the Delphi Historic Trail, approximately one mile upstream from the bridge. On Wednesday, February 15th, law enforcement officers distributed a photograph of a person observed on the Delphi Historic Trail. The photograph appears to depict a white male wearing blue jeans, a blue coat jacket, and a hoodie. During the course of the investigation, preliminary evidence has led investigators to believe the person in the distributed photograph is a suspect in the investigation of the homicides of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. Additionally, investigators have released an updated voice recording and video of the suspect not previously released that was extracted from Liberty Libby German's cell phone. Anyone with information about this case is encouraged to send tips to this email address, Abby and Libby Tip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F dot com. Information sent by email is kept confidential and is only shared with investigators. If you would like to make a phone call, you can reach them at the tip line at 765-822-3535. Information can be reported anonymously. However, the Indiana State Police, the FBI, and the Carroll County Sheriff's Department have announced a reward for information leading to the arrest of the person or persons responsible for the homicides of Liberty German and Abigail Williams. The amount of the reward may be in excess of $200,000 depending on the value of the information provided. So if you know anything, that's a big paycheck. Law enforcement authorities reserve the right to reject a claim for reward where there has been collusion or criminal involvement. So, it's very interesting. The Indiana State Police has established an account for individuals or businesses wishing to donate to the Delphi Reward Fund. Checks should be made payable to the Indiana State Police Alliance Foundation. Delphi Reward should be entered on the memo line. And donations can be mailed to Indiana State Police Alliance, 1415 Shelby Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46203. And as I told you at the beginning of this segment in regards to the Delphi case, I know Kelsey now, and uh, it may be virtual, but it is, um, you get to know somebody, and it is one of those things that you really want to see that solved for the sake of the family and you know, for Libby's family, for Kelsey, for Abby's family. I mean, this is a case that has really gripped the country. I know that anytime that we bring up Delphi, it is a very uh, hot topic. So just interesting to um, keep an eye on this case. They have come out with new information. We'll see if this uh, Anthony Schwartz social media connection pans out. But We'll see, and uh, fingers crossed that 2022 is the year. So again, contact the Indiana State Police or the FBI or Crime Stoppers, and you can possibly receive a huge reward. So let's just hope this is the year. And number one is, of course, Amy Mahalovic, my true passion case. I started this very podcast with her case. I chose to start with her murder because it was something I grew up with. I lived in Rocky River, which is located right next to Bay Village, the city where Amy was abducted from. The fact that we were the same age and in the same grade struck a chord with me. I was not your average 10-year-old and was already aware of the seriousness of her disappearance. I could just blame 80s horror movies for teaching us that kind of mentality. My connection to Amy's case is one of proximity and age. I was also 10 years old when Amy was abducted, And I lived in Rocky River, which, as I said, borders the east side of Bay Village. Both cities have very similar demographics, and it was a complete shock to hear that someone inside our little bubble had been taken. It kind of changed the way our parents parented us and the way teachers taught us. It was as if they used Amy's case as a cautionary tale to prevent any of us from having the same thing happen. 
I remember on one occasion, our class watched Margaret Mihaljevic's guest appearance on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, a 1980s talk show that mostly resembled every other 80s era talk show. And they would book people like Margaret, people with a tragedy to share. It was good for ratings, and in all reality, it did make an impact on me as we were forced to watch. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on those shows, you feel the victims' families are exploited for the sake of viewership. The shows meant well, but there is only so much that can be done with a segment or two on an hour-long talk show. That is why this medium, podcasts, are such a valuable, valuable new tool in helping tell the whole story of these unsolved cases, because one can spend the necessary time it takes to tell the story right. I have loved true crime since before I knew what the term meant. I remember watching 2020 with Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters when I was nine years old. I recall listening to the news with my mom and I heard about a teenager who had gone missing. I looked at my mom and said, the boyfriend did it. Mind you, I was nine years old. Lo and behold, a few days later, the police discovered her body behind the boyfriend's garage. So it's apparent that I have quite the macabre taste in entertainment and that is what has led me to the point of this podcast. And this case has been a focal point in a city where crime doesn't happen often. But when it does, it makes sure to become national news. Case in point, the Sam Shepard case. That spawned movies and television shows. Ever seen The Fugitive? Yep, based off the guy from Bay Village. This city of less than 18,000 people has a knack for finding itself in the middle of these unsolved mysteries. And as a journalism student, you learn about the five W's, the who, what, where, when, and why. And in a throwback to the golden days of newspapers here, they are in the case, you know, Amy left her blue bike in the wreck at Bay Middle School and walked over to Bay Square with a couple of her friends. And although I'm not sure how close the, she was with these people because she was walking with them and they didn't know anything about this particular meeting. Now, Amy's school day ended about an hour or so before her brother Jason's, and she would go home and call her mother at trading times to let her know that she was home. Now, this was where her mother worked. This was a daily routine and one that probably didn't mean much to Amy, but it probably provided comfort to her mom that she was home safe. The Mihaljevics even had a code word that they used in order to know that a person was safe to be with. It is not believed that this abductor knew this word, so it begs the question of how this person was able to get Amy so comfortable with him that she actually got in his car. Now, Amy was not at home when her brother came back from school, so he called his mom to let her know. And Margaret was concerned, but told Jason to call her when Amy did return. It was after Margaret talked to Jason that her phone rang at her office, and it was Amy. She was put at ease for a moment, but she got a feeling that Amy may not be safe. She did her best to leave as soon as possible, but it really wasn't until closer to five that she was actually to get out of work and get to the house on Linford. Jason told Margaret the one thing she didn't want to hear, quote, Amy isn't home. Margaret got into her car and headed to Bay Middle School where she saw what had to be a horrible sight. Amy's bike, still sitting in the bike rack. Margaret headed straight to the police station and reported 10-year-old Amy Renee Mihaljevic as missing. The police department didn't hesitate in issuing a missing child alert. The news hit the local stations, and the information relating was that Bay Village police were looking for a young girl that had not come home from school. The composite sketch is one you may have seen, but as a kid who was living in the city next door, it was nearly in every store window you went into. It stood out as a warning to parents to keep their children's close, children close, and it told kids that evil can exist anywhere. Unfortunately, three months later, her body would be found in a field in Ashland County, some 50 miles from where she was abducted. And what makes this case so scary is that this person lured Amy to the plaza she was taken from. The person had the gall to call Amy's home and set up this fateful date. He used the ruse of, I work with your mother, and I want, to help, I want your help to pick out a gift. And if there's money left over, we can buy something for you. And again, this is just how these things can happen. This guy just so happened to call this girl when her parents weren't home, convinced her of some falsehoods, and boom, here we go. She's gone. 
I've spoken with Mark. I have a relationship with him, and I feel very, very close to the family, and I feel like this case is really the number one case on my list of the cases that I want to see solved, but it's kind of personal because I know Mark is, you know, getting older, and I would just love to see some sort of justice in this case. It's not closure. Nobody will say that. And I, he would never say that, and I would never even imply that. But it is something that could be done. Justice is something that still can be done in this case. And if you know anything about this case, you can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 or just contact your local FBI. And in that regard, that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you to BetterHelp.com for sponsoring this week's show. For the second year in a row, well, it's not my second year in a row, but it's going to be my second official time representing Who Killed Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic in my passion case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas. It is definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fan. The dates are April 29th through May 1st. If you want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code AMY2022. If you enjoy this podcast or my other shows, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That's slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. There may also be a link in the show notes. Every contribution helps keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. And if you don't want to donate, you can help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows because they help keep the cases that I've covered, like all the cases today, in the spotlight. As you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. So if you want to stay up to date with the cases that I have covered as well as the new shows that are in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And thank you guys so much again for listening. Until next time, please stay healthy and be safe. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.